Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, one of Ontario's major dilemmas is lack of housing and affordable housing, but the province's new approach to the crisis is rubbing a lot of people the wrong way. Marianne Mead Ward, the mayor of Burlington, will join us to talk about that. The second trial for a Binbrook man charged with second-degree murder for fatally shooting an Indigenous man continues this week. We'll give you the latest on that. And what's a trigger rate for a variable mortgage? And should we be concerned? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, uh, we want to focus on uh, what's happening with the municipal politics and uh, the relationship, shall we say, between our provincial government and the municipalities. And that comes to, of course, a number of issues. Uh, for instance, incursions into the green belt, uh, how cities are going to grow, where they're going to grow, and how they're going to grow, uh, which usually is under the purview of, of the local councils that we elect, right? Uh, maybe not so much anymore. Uh, as we've talked about on the program before, uh, the uh, Ford government has changed that that, that paradigm considerably with uh, some legislation that they've introduced in the last little while. Uh, Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark now says that legislation that uh, he's talking about now uh, could allow him to appoint what he calls facilitators to assess regional governments in places like Durham, Halton, Niagara, Peel, Waterloo, and York. Here's the minister. The legislation that we're proposing would also give me the authority to appoint the current regional chairs of Niagara, Peel, and York to the current term of council. Uh, which is disturbing, I'm sure, for the folks that uh, just elected those councils. Uh, joining us to talk about this, and I want to get into a number of other things about planning uh, in municipal levels too, is uh, Marianne Mead Ward. Marianne Mead Ward, of course, is the mayor for the city of Burlington, the recently re-elected mayor of the city of Burlington. Uh, Madam Mayor, it's been a while. Thanks for come, uh, jumping on the program with us today. Really appreciate the time. Great to be back, Bill. Nice to hear your voice again. Well, I, I wish it was under better circumstances. I mean, there's, yeah. uh, there's a lot going on here. Let me first of all ask you about uh, the clip we just played here from the Municipal Affairs Minister. Uh, a number of governments, of course, uh, have had two-tier governments, regional governments and, of course, local governments for some years now. Hamilton went with ahead at one point. Uh, you and Halton still have that, of course. Uh, and that, by the way, was uh, the, something that was dictated by the provincial government of that day. Uh, now it looks as if uh, this current government wants to uh, basically uh, blow that up. Uh, your thoughts on that? Well, you know, they tried this before in the last term of council, and we made the case and our residents made the case that there is a complementary, not overlapping role for regions, uh, for region-wide planning. And one uh, the, one of the best examples in, is water and wastewater. The, the big pipes that are required to facilitate the housing that they want uh, cross municipal boundaries. And, and so there is a role for the region in all of the services that they provide. Public health is another big one. And we saw that it really made sense to have a region-wide and, and ultimately uh, a province-wide approach to public health issues to prevent, you know, migrating during that public health crisis. So, um, you know, we, uh, local governance is best left, left to local municipalities. Uh, I don't disagree. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I don't know if they didn't read that memo, uh, because you and I talked about it at the time. We've talked with the, the people down in Niagara about the very same thing. And and I thought the case was settled. I thought, okay, yeah, you guys have made a very valid case. We'll just leave it alone for now. Uh, I, I don't know what's changed the dynamic here, but they seem hell-bent for leather. They're going to go in and just wipe all these things out, notwithstanding uh, what you just mentioned. Well, it appears that they, you know, they, they've diagnosed a problem. We, we need more housing and, and we need more affordable housing. And, and those are two different uh, policy 
policy problems. Uh, affordability is, uh, requires a certain set of policies. Uh, supply requires uh, another set of policies. Uh, but then the, the manner in which they're trying to uh, address both of these, I would say, is a giant policy mismatch uh, and has the potential for environmental devastation and bankrupting municipalities, not to mention uh, taking away democratic rights from, from uh, regions. So, uh, you know, we're, we're here to help and work on the supply side as well as the affordability side. We have a number of strategies in Burlington. Many municipalities do. Our message has been clear. Um, mayors across the province have said, we're here to partner with you. We're here to work with you. And here's what we're already doing. And, uh, you know, work with us. And, and the, the, what they're proposing as the solution to the supply and affordability is just going to create uh, a disaster. Well, and, you know, I, I don't know if they can learn from history. I'd like to think that they could. I, as we mentioned, a number of municipalities and, and regions went through regional government, two-tier government, uh, many, many years ago. Uh, and then the Harris government decided, no, we're going to blow that whole thing up. And, and well, Ottawa, Toronto, uh, Hamilton, and among others, uh, were forced into this, what they call super cities, the amalgamation. And I know mm. that's, a, that's a dirty word for a lot of people in many of the regions mm. that we're listening to the show right now. It didn't work. I mean, let's cut right to the bottom line here. I mean, it cost a lot more money than they said it was going to be, and it's it's something that, that people still have a very, very bad attitude about. Uh, why would they continue down that road when it's proven in the past uh, that, that it, it's going to cost more to do it the way they're suggesting it? Well, well I hope you can get those answers <laughs> we've asked, <laughs> and it, it's a head-scratcher for sure. And I'll give you just one example, which we have conveyed very clearly to the province, is around the conservation authorities. So Halton has six municipalities in the watershed because water doesn't flow according to municipalities and you really do need that broad watershed perspective to understand the impact of, for example, developing on a wetland and the impact downstream of flooding in any urban area that is within that watershed. Conservation Halton has a small uh, team of experts that provide planning services on a watershed basis to six municipalities. If you blow that up, now add uh, six times the cost to that service if you can get the staff to do it because municipalities are not staffed with that same level of expertise. They provide uh, for pennies on the dollar an incredible service to all of the municipalities that rely on them and, and this is really about protecting life and protecting property. It, it, it is as, uh, as stark as that. This is what's at stake. And so we uh, at Halton sent a letter, the mayor's on the board of that uh, and the chair sent a letter to the province saying, look, uh, perhaps these were unintended consequences. Let us help you understand what, what the, uh, the consequence of this will be. And in fact, it's not going to help you build housing faster. It's not going to help you build more housing, and it's not going to make it more affordable. Different policy tools are required for all of that, and we are 100% on board to help you with, with that with the right tool. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the conservation authorities. That's a nice segue into what I was going to ask you next, because the legislation that they've introduced uh, with this housing bill essentially uh, limits, if not eliminates, uh, the work that conservation authorities have done for so long, uh, to the point where, and in Hamilton we're concerned about this, I know you are in, in Burlington and in Halton, uh, where David Crombie, the former chair now of, of the, the Greenbelt Council, resigned because he says, you guys just don't get it. This is not what we're supposed to be doing here. Uh, and it basically throws out an awful lot of the stuff that, well, Bill Davis and, and premiers before uh, this premier uh, had worked on to try to maintain uh, conservation and un environmental issues. We, we seem to be taking a giant leap backwards here, don't we? 
Absolutely. And and this this puts life and property at risk. There's no other way to say it. It also puts the environment and biodiversity at risk. Things that we rely on to address the uh, impacts of climate change, which are which are, you know, global impacts. But, you know, did did we not learn from the floods? Uh, Burlington had a flood in 2014 that devastated homes uh, adjacent to creeks. Mississauga had a flood. Uh, Conservation authorities, let's remember, were put in place after Hurricane Hazel. People died. So, you know, why why would we we, uh, monkey around with something that is protecting life, property, and the environment? It is working. And and some of the changes that were brought in, and CH, uh, our uh, our CEO, Hassan Bassett, was chair of the working group. It was a collaborative effort. That group was not consulted on these most recent changes, by the way, and they should have been. Uh, but everyone had a seat around the table and and brought in some, um, uh, some appropriate changes to, to conservation authorities. We don't know what has led to this latest other than there seems to be a push to open up the Greenbelt, open up uh, wetlands, primarily by developers who have funded this this uh, government, um, and, and allow housing anywhere. And it's the wrong kind of housing. It is sprawl housing. There are no pipes there. There's no transit. There's no community amenities. And, and the bill also will gut our ability as municipalities to collect development charges and parkland dedication fees so that we can pay for these things. So, you know... W- to the tune, by the way, of a billion dollars a year. That is what the Association of Municipalities of Ontario has calculated the uh, the sucking hole in our municipal budgets from this bill. So that won't get more housing built faster. In fact, it will slow it down. It certainly won't get any more community centers or parks built, won't help with transit, and it, it creates more straw, sprawl in exactly the areas where we don't want it. So um, it, it is absolutely devastating on on just about every front and will not achieve the goals that the province wants. In your particular situation, let's let's talk about Burlington and downtown Burlington more specifically, because I know that was a huge issue uh, when you first decided to run for mayor, was how Burlington was going to grow and where it was going to grow and how high it was going to grow, especially mm-hmm. the downtown core. Uh, and that's been an ongoing battle for you and your council. Uh, basically, what this legislation seems to do uh, is is gut the responsibility and the and the work that's being done at municipal councils. In other words, it, it's it seems right now with this legislation that whether it's Hamilton what we're talking about or Burlington or Ottawa or Toronto or whatever uh, has very little say in exactly where we're going to grow, how we're going to grow, and and in which fashion and who's going to do it. Well, it's very anti-democratic because uh, councils are elected by their residents. They work with their community. And, and by the way, we also work with our professional planning staff who give us a recommendation, do all this analysis to determine where growth should go. And we know that growth uh, should go around our go stations. That is provincial policy. We are absolutely in line with what the province has suggested. You put the, the major amount of growth and density where it can be served by higher order transit. And that was not downtown. Our, our little bus terminal with 400 boardings and alightings is not uh, regional express rail. So we are shifting with the help of the province. We thank them very much for uh, uh, shifting our growth, uh, the urban growth center and major transit station area to the Burlington GO station. Never been done before. We were told it couldn't be done, but there we have it. We can accommodate all of the growth that the province has assigned to us, which is about 29,000 units. We already have about 21,700 under review right now. 
problem, they're all tied up at the Ontario Land Tribunal. So, you know, who knows when uh, decisions will be made. It, it takes, it, it, on average, two years to get a decision out of the uh, OLT. So if the government wants to speed up delivery of housing, um, dismantle, get rid of the OLT, let us get on with building the units that we know our community needs in the locations that we've already said and the province has said they should go. And we don't have to sprawl. There, there are a couple of things about that. And first of all, I've, I've been on record. I, I don't look at people that are developers as big, bad, mean, money-grubbing people. I mean, the, the, there may be a couple of bad apples. I, I get that. But more often than not, you know, the, there can be some collaboration between municipalities and developers to get things done. Uh, but the way things are, are being designed right now with this legislation, uh, you mentioned the uh, the, la- the land tribunal. Uh, 95% of the cases that go there, uh, the tribunal, uh, uh, it, it, they, they favor the, the developer as opposed to the municipality. So if somebody wants to do something, build a 75-story building in downtown Burlington, all they have to do is play the waiting game because they know they're going to get their way eventually, and that basically uh, limits any impact at all that local councils can have. Absolutely. It, it is undemocratic, it is, it is inefficient, it slows the delivery of housing, and it adds millions of dollars to the cost of housing. It, it fundamentally works against the goal of more homes built faster. And I agree with you. I have very good relationships with uh, the West End Home Builders Association, with the Halton Chapter of Build. Uh, we meet regularly. Uh, that was paused during the election, but that is starting right up again, where we share, uh, you know, share the concerns that we have. And one of the things that they've raised to us is uh, how long it takes to get permits. We have undergone an entire permit process overhaul at the City of Burlington and are about to launch those changes. We, that's what will help with supply and, and, uh, and speeding up the supply is making sure that we uh, eliminate any unnecessary steps in red tape. And we're on that. We're doing that. So, you know, let us, uh, let us carry on with that work and we'll get you the housing. Get rid of the OLT because as soon as, uh, as, soon as we make a decision to support a development, they can get shovel in the ground. But if, if they are playing that waiting game, as you said, to get it, and honestly, it's usually one or two more stories, uh, they're playing that waiting game. Uh, meanwhile, the costs of housing continues to go up, interest rates go up, labor shortage, cost of materials go up, uh, and, uh, and they don't know what, when they're going to get uh, a hearing at the tribunal. Or we could just let municipalities make the decisions. We are on uh, the same page to get housing built, and uh, shovel would be in the ground as soon as you know, as, as soon as our work is done with the permits, which we're speeding up. And, and more often than not, I know we're just about out of time here. Uh, there, there's a, there's a, a there's a middle ground here. I mean, and the, the, the developers in your area, the Molinero family, the the Paletta family, have done some incredible work in your community, and and there's strong commu- community members too, and they've done an awful lot of great stuff there. And you can work it out. But on the other hand, uh, that's because they understand that the municipality has a voice, and it just seems as if the province has taken that voice away. So, uh, I know there's more to come on this in in the, the days and weeks ahead. Uh, as this legislation moves forward. Uh, thank you, uh, Madam Mayor, for taking so much time for us today. I really do appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for your interest, and for sure, more to come. Happy to come back. You betcha. Uh, Marianne Mead Ward, the uh, Mayor of the City of Burlington, thanks again. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. we got to focus a little bit on uh, what's going on in the courts these days. Uh, some high-profile cases, a couple of murder cases, uh, and convictions that had already taken place are back in the news today, and uh, the, well, the families of those victims might actually think for all the wrong reasons, but there is a retrial going on right now 
Uh, Peter Cahill is back on trial now for murder, which uh, he was uh, tried some years ago. Uh, CHML's uh, Lisa Pileski is covering the trial for us uh, and uh, joins us to give us the uh, the scene about what's going on. Lisa, thanks on a very busy day. I appreciate you taking some time for us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Bill. What's what's the mood in, in the courtroom right now? A lot of people have thought, okay, this is over and done with. Uh, there was a trial. There was a verdict that was rendered. Uh, there was an appeal. Uh, and we thought this was over and done with. But all of a sudden, of course, during that appeal, uh, they ordered a new trial. And uh, they mentioned some what they thought were some shortcomings in, in the way that the, uh, the, the judge in the first trial uh, had charged the jury. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about that, because the, the, there's, a, there's a possibility of racism that's been raised, bias about Indigenous peoples, and a number of different things. A lot to unpack here, isn't there? Yeah, well, so so in 2018, when uh, a jury found um, Peter Cahill not guilty of second-degree murder of Jonathan Stiers, um, the, uh, the Ontario Court of Appeal basically determined that um, the judge, when advising the jury, did not uh, reasonably uh, kind of inform them of, you know, Mr. Cahill's role in the incident, according to that. It's a, he said Mr. Cahill's role, Cahill's role in the incident should have been expressly drawn to the attention of the jury, uh, the absence of any explanation concerning the legal significance of his role in the incident was a serious error. So, you know, the 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 fact that this, you know, it, it, it's being drawn attention to the fact that uh, when he was woken up uh, that morning on 3 a.m., February 4th, uh, 4th, 2016, he basically grabbed his shotgun instead of grabbing the phone to call 911. And that was his action. That was his decision. He made a decision to confront um, Jonathan Stiers rather than actually calling the police. So that's really being highlighted by the Crown this time. Um, I wasn't actually privy to the trial the first time round, so I can't really speak to exactly how that was emphasized, but it's definitely uh, when the Crown was laying out their arguments, they were saying, you know, his life was not worth the cost of an old pickup truck. So, so basically highlighting that this was a choice that Peter Cahill made to to basically confront him rather than calling for the police. I, I guess you have to put context in here that when you look at the first trial, anyway, don't you, Lisa? Because uh, as as I recall, that was that trial took place uh, not too long after a very controversial case out in Saskatchewan, uh, the shooting death of uh, Colton Bushy, uh, who was an Indigenous man who was uh, again shot and killed by a white male. And uh, it was pretty obvious during that trial, as a matter of fact, there was an appeal that, uh, that there was racism, you know, just dripping through this, this whole trial. The, the indication uh, in, in the testimony that was given, et cetera, is that, that it was basically a bias against Indigenous people. Uh, and that was the cloud that was hanging over the Cahill trial the first time. Now, we're told that the, the jurors in that first trial were asked if they had any bias. Uh, but clearly uh, that still seemed to be a, a factor. And that was one of the main factors, I guess, in, in overturning the initial uh, verdict, wasn't it? Yeah. And so that was actually a factor this past Monday when um, they were picking the jury uh, for this for this re- new trial. They asked them, you know, about their bias towards Indigenous men. And that, that was a factor. So they did whittle it down to 12 members of uh, a jury that will be sitting for the next two to three weeks. Now, mind you, that, that actually 
the number has gone down to 11 because unfortunately one of the jurors had a sudden death in the family. So it will be 11 jurors sitting over the next two to three weeks. And ideally, you know, they, they have been checked for the their bias and hopefully that won't be an issue, but it remains to be seen um, because it, it's it's hard to tell how this trial will will be different from the last one, I suppose. Now, how's, what's the process here? I mean, you know, the, the, the evidence of that incident has been presented. Do, do they simply represent? Do they bring witnesses back? I mean, you know, time has passed. People's memories tend to fade after a while. Yeah, and that's that's for sure. And that's already actually come up. They did have, um, they didn't actually call back one of the witnesses. It was one of the responding forensics officers back in 2016. Instead of bringing that person back, uh, uh, Tamara McGillivray, she, uh, they actually just used kind of uh, testimony from the previous time and, and photos of the evidence that was taken at the scene and also did call in um, her partner, uh, that would be Timothy O'Keefe, who was a, uh, a detective at the time as well, who was on the scene. And he, he was in court yesterday. And, you know, actually an interesting thing did come up where he apparently reviewed some of the uh, some of the, the clothing that was taken off of Jonathan Styers back in uh, 2016. And I don't know where it's going to go yet, but apparently he found a business card in um, Jonathan Styers' jacket that was apparently sealed the whole time. So I, it's hard to tell if this was evidence that wasn't presented the first time round. It's a business card essentially for... Um, for a real estate agent, and it has a, a writing on the back that says Highway 56. Um, now, again, remains to be seen how this actually turns out this time around, but it's, it, it seems like even there might be new evidence in this case. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, you know, obviously there's going to be a reintroduction of, of the stuff that was presented in the first trial, uh, but you wonder if the Crown has evidence of, of, of things that they've recovered or discovered in, in the meantime uh, that could be presented. Did you get any inkling of that uh, in the first uh, little bit of the trial here that you've seen? Well, yeah, so there was that example, too, and it was I, I really hesitate to linger too much on that because they really only touched on it briefly yesterday. Um, a lot of what was discussed yesterday was the, uh, the ballistics forensics, and they had uh, Judy Chin, who is a ballistics expert from the Center for Forensic Sciences, and basically uh, going over the uh, the range at which Jonathan Styers was shot, um, basically looking at the his gunshot wounds, the, uh, the impact of the shotgun shells, and how that would, how it would work, essentially. Um, she, you know, she does the, the field testing, and so... Again, I, I, unfortunately, I wasn't privy to the first trial, so I can't say whether or not this is repeat evidence, but it was definitely fascinating to see um, and determine because Styers was shot twice, once in the chest, um, the upper left side of the chest, and then once in the right shoulder. So it, and it was interesting to see how, you know, he was shot more directly on in, in the shoulder, whereas it was he was shot at an angle in the chest. So I don't know how that's going to factor in, but it's really interesting to hear this kind of evidence and, and how that might make a, make a difference in what the jury uh, concludes this time around. Well, that's always interesting when there's a retrial and especially something as dramatic as this. Uh, I don't think there's any, any argument right now about the, the facts as were presented in the first trial uh, about the fact that he grabbed the shotgun, went out and, and, and confronted the individual and shot him twice. I don't think they're going to argue that point. It's, I guess they're talking about intention right now and mindsets. Mm -hmm. and, and, and of course, uh, 
the, the, the charge to the jury when they get to that, but that's weeks away. So this is, this is going to be a process. It's going to take a while, isn't it? Yeah. So it's going to take, like I said, two to three weeks. It really depends on, you know, availability. Sometimes people, certain experts aren't available um, and, you know, you have issues with the jury sometimes. But uh, it, it seems like they're going to be hearing from forensics experts, uh, ballistics experts, pathologists, things like that. And they are going to be looking at more um, kind of what was the what happened leading up to the shooting and and that was why they emphasized the fact that you know the the 911 was not called until after Jonathan Stars was shot so looking into why that was the case um why why Peter K Hill went for the gun and opted to ultimately confront him when you know he 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 may may have had other options I know the facts that, uh, as they were presented at the time, and I can remember talking about this in the program, as that first trial was ongoing, uh, and, and I know a lot of people were upset with the verdict that was rendered at that particular time, but I know the lawyers and their opening statement this time around, Lisa, uh, as you've mentioned in your reporting, uh, says that uh, the, the defense says that he remains innocent in the eyes of the law and look forward to defending the matter fully and vigorously at this new trial. Uh, so it's interesting the perspective they're taking on this. They, they don't seem to be arguing the facts. They're simply saying that, you know, the first trial ruled on his intent already. So it's going to be uh, fascinating to watch how the, the crown is going to uh, go at this as well over the next couple of weeks. Uh, I, it's always, it's, I know it's, it's very, very tough to, to cover something like this. It's an emotional time for everybody, the families involved. And, uh, and as we found out during the, the Bosma trial, which by the way, we're going to talk about in just a second. Uh, it's, it's emotionally draining for people like you too, that sit there and listen to the testimony time and time again. Uh, we look forward to your reporting on this and thanks so much for taking some time for us this morning, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Lisa Pileski, a reporter for 900 CHML, who's covering the uh, retrial of uh, Cahill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of confusion. About, well, we'll get into the Cahill trial here and then uh, some new information about uh, the Tim Bosma uh, murderers uh, in, in a couple of minutes as well. Uh, because, I mean, when you get into articles of law and, and, and the, uh, the interpretation of the law, it can be rather confusing unless you know scripture and verse about what's happening here. And to give us some perspective on this, uh, we're pleased to welcome to the program uh, Ari Goldkind, who is a Toronto defense lawyer. Uh, Ari, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Bill, great to be on with you. I'm not sure I brought my scripture, but we'll give it a shot. <laughs> uh, I, well, we'll give it the, the, the best shot that we can. Uh, the trial judge, uh, according to, to the appeal that was uh, launched, and which is the reason why we're having the second trial, Ari, uh, they said the trial judge failed to give instructions to jurors on the way in which Cahill's role in the shooting should be used to assess the reasonableness of his conduct. Uh, that's according to Judge Sheila Martin uh, in writing for the majority in that decision that was released. Uh, what exactly are they talking about? S suggesting that bias sure. or, or, or racism was, was at play here? No, not at all. So I think that's the worst part of the story. I think the racism or indigenous angle is a shameful one. It has no bearing in this case. Obviously, there are people that make a living uh, trying to support that angle. It has no business in the case. I'll explain that in a moment. Let's sure. go to the Supreme Court decision. It was actually a really, really easy one for the Supreme Court. This is a, a, an area of law that might seem confusing at first blush. I think by the time I'm done, hopefully it's not. Okay? Sure. The way it was sent back is because the trial judge really had the jury focus on the moment that Kale, that, uh, Kale shot him, which is he thought he saw something in his hand, whether that's true or false, we'll talk about but the jury was essentially told, focus on that moment, the moment of the shooting, maybe a second or two before. 
What the Supreme Court said quite properly and in a very easy decision is, look, Cahill from his bedroom had a whole bunch of options available to him when he saw the lights of his truck go on and somebody trying to break into it. Remember, he didn't know he's indigenous or aboriginal or Chinese or black or Jewish or whatever, which is why I hate the way this story is being told in the media. But welcome to identity politics of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. What the Supreme Court said is, look, he could have called 911. He could have turned the lights on in the house. He could have yelled down to the person to get out of his car. The essential question for the jury is, don't just look at the moment of the shooting. A bigger question is, look at everything Cahill did from the second this incident started until the shooting and what that means with a wink wink nudge nudge and it's for the jury to decide is did Cahill's own behavior his own actions his military background as you remember a big part of the story was he a little bit trigger happy versus you and I calling 911 staying in our bedroom realizing it's just a truck and it's not worth creating a situation that led to him saying I had to shoot. So the bottom line, Bill, of the Supreme Court was, don't just look at that 20-second exchange. Look at the conduct of Cahill as to whether all of the conduct can reasonably be said to be in the self-defense realm, or did Cahill, through his own thinking, his own background, his military experience, did he create the very kind of situation he's now claiming self-defense about. I'm not saying what the answer is, but that's something for a jury to look at the situation from top to bottom, not just before the end to the end. In this situation, though, with your experience, Ari, how does this new jury uh, unremember un un this? I mean, you know, how can they start with a clean slate even though they're going to hear this information all over again? Well, that's a great question, Bill, and that ties into the odious, horrendous question yesterday about you know, the jury was told this is a white man shooting an indigenous man. What that has to do with anything, unless they can show Cahill somehow knew this was an indigenous person. I mean, that's just so beyond the pale of what I think the court should be involved in. That, you know, you could reverse the races, you could do it the other way around. You will never, ever hear that question being posed. It's odious. The question really becomes the exposure to media reporting about this or previous uh, knowledge of it. The good news, Bill, is the juries tend to, even if they know the name Weinstein, even if they know the name Spacey, even if they know the name Bosma, okay, they tend to take jury instructions very seriously. So even if they came into this thinking Cahill is a killer or Cahill is a defender, when all the evidence comes out the way it should and the judge instructs them, juries tend to and, it, and it's a good thing, Bill, by the way. Juries tend to really focus on what the facts and evidence are in 9 out of 10 cases, maybe 9.5. But you're right. There's always that lingering concern that defense lawyers like me will have, which is, have, have they made their minds up yet? How can we know for sure? You can never really know for sure, Bill. It's a human process. But as I said, the way the evidence will unfold, the, ver unfold, the very simplicity of this case, let's not pretend. This is overly complex. It's not a complicated tax fraud uh, deal with a bunch of liens on a commercial property. Is did Cahill do the things that I've just mentioned? And I think a jury will do their job quite properly here.
as uh, Lee says, our inner email here, he says, uh, we don't have capital punishment in this country, and we certainly don't allow lethal force to be used uh, by a citizen for a property offense. And, and I know that's the mindset that a lot of people hit in this. It's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds. Uh, Ari, you mentioned the and referenced the, the Bosma case a minute ago. The, the news uh, that we found today, of course, uh, has to do with uh, those that were convicted in that. Uh, the two individuals that were convicted, not only in the, the murder of Tim Bosma, but also of Laura Babcock and of uh, uh, Millard's dad. Uh, they, and, and I, the fact is that they, they could have their sentences reduced, but this is really uh, a Supreme Court decision based on, on a, a parliamentary decision, I guess, that came some years ago about, about being able to use consecutive sentences as opposed to concurrent sentences. Uh, and a lot of people applauded that at the time as, as getting tough on crime, but the Supreme Court pretty much tossed that out, haven't they? Yeah. So I, I don't know how much time we have. What do we have? A couple minutes? Yeah. I got a couple minutes left. Yeah. All right, so this to me is almost as interesting, if not more interesting, than Cahill. And as soon as I explain this, I think more people will take an interest in this, and I think it's a story that should have been told more broadly. In 2011, the, the Harper government basically said, look, if you're a serial killer, if you kill two, three, five, seven people, right now in Canada, every life doesn't matter. You still get parole eligibility after 25 years. Well, if you kill two, three, seven, ten people, why do those lives not count in the parole ineligibility period calculus? In other words, you kill three people. Maybe you shouldn't be allowed to apply for parole for 75 years. Now, remember, Prime Minister Woke, that's Justin Trudeau, never changed that law. He never had a problem with it. Imagine that because Harper is like Voldemort and, you know, you're supposed to think everything he did was wrong. That was never changed. Just recently, as a result of the mosque shooter bill, that name is Bissonette for people who are curious, the mm -hmm. Supreme Court came along and said, well, if you don't allow a, uh, a Dylan Millard, a Paul Bernardo, uh, I can name a whole bunch of them, the mosque shooter, to apply for parole in their natural life, no matter how many people they killed, that's really just no big deal. It's cruel and unusual punishment. That's their term, Bill, not mine. It's cruel and unusual punishment to not allow a killer to have some ray of light to apply for parole in their life. The argument can be, from the defense lawyer point of view, it's better for the penitentiary, give everybody a hope, it lets them rehabilitate themselves, leads to less violence in jail. We're not cruel, cold-hearted people. But when you explain that to the ordinary average citizen who's not cold-hearted, Bill, that you can take as many lives as you want but still drag families like Paul Bernardo does every year now, to parole hearings in Kingston, that really upsets a lot of people who may take a very principled view that, look, if you kill two, three, seven people on different days, Bill, different days, forget in one transaction, maybe you forfeited the right to breathe the same air as you and I, but nine judges of the Supreme Court of our Canada, uh, of our country, Bill, think I'm wrong. But, you know, my views are my views, their views are their views, and I'll leave it at that. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and we'll have to leave it at that, too. We're just about out of time, but more to come on this. And by the way, uh, Millard and, and Smitch are repealing those convictions, so we're, this is not the end of the story. Ari, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this today. Really appreciate it. Great to be on with you. Take care. Toronto defense lawyer Ari Goldkind with his take on what's happening here uh, with both those trials. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're all concerned about rising interest rates, and we've talked about this on the show. Uh, we all understand what's causing it, but the, the fact of the matter is, is we're going to have to deal with this, and it's impacting so many different facets of our life, including mortgages. You know, we've talked about housing and affordable housing. 
Uh, and as uh, the Bank of Canada has continued to raise interest rates, uh, we're told that, well, yeah, it's it's not great and it's going to hurt. But, you know, if you're locked into a mortgage, you should be OK until your mortgage actually comes due. And then you may have to renew it or whatever your circumstances are going to be. But there's an element to this that not a whole lot of people were thinking about. And that's people that maybe have variable rate mortgages uh, who can be impacted uh, dramatically by this, by something called a trigger rate. Uh, to explain what's going on here, please to welcome back to the program Ian Lee. Ian is a associate professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us again. Uh, My pleasure. Were, and, a, and more importantly, Bill, I, I was nine years in banking before I became a professor, and I lent millions and millions of dollars in mortgage money in Ottawa at that time, back in the 70s and 1980s, for a BMO. And uh, the fundament, the business hasn't fundamentally changed. I mean, you know, there's a different few wrinkles, but the idea of uh, variable rate mortgage and fixed rate mortgages have been around forever and ever. And uh, this is a this is an important risk for a subset of the population. But you know, I've I've owned a few houses in my time, as you and I have talked about again. Uh, and I've had variable rate mortgages. We have one right now, in fact. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, it, it, when things start to happen as they are right now, you have, you have to make decisions. Should I lock in? Should I stay the way That's things right. are going, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't ever remember having a discussion about something called a trigger rate. Maybe you could explain that to our listeners. Sure. Um, and I, I wish I had it at my fingertips when this happened. I, I'm pretty certain it happened probably in the last five, six, seven years as OSFI, that's the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions that regulates the banks and mortgage products. They've become successively more um, uh, restrictive in terms of the rules that apply to everybody. Unlike the states, um, we regulate our mortgage rules, mortgage lending rules, much more rigorously uh, than the Americans do. For example, you must have down payment by law in Canada, whereas in the United States, you don't have to have a down payment to get a house, uh, which is just really confuses me, but uh, nonetheless. So to your point, the trigger rate is where the, uh, you have a variable rate mortgage and you have a, you have essentially a fixed payment uh, with a variable rate mortgage. You borrow, uh, let's say $500,000 and they say to you, okay, here's your nominal principal and interest payment and you make that payment. However, with a variable rate mortgage, as the rate goes up, a larger and larger share of the payment is going towards interest because the interest rate's going up. Well, in the extreme case of the interest rate goes up high enough, um, you could find that uh, you, all of the payment is going to interest and you still don't have enough to cover uh, the, or the contracted amount monthly. And so that triggers a higher payment. Your payment goes up, notwithstanding that you think it wasn't, simply because you're not paying enough monthly to cover the interest due on that mortgage. So it's it's a risk. I'm, I'm not so sure it's a big risk because, of course, we also require down payment, which means that, you know, the down payment reduces the amount you're borrowing. And so uh, having said that, there are some Canadians that will be affected by this trigger clause that says uh, if you're not covering all the interest, well, then you're going to have to start paying a larger payment monthly to the bank. I want to talk about some of the options that might be available for those folks, but uh, before we get to that aspect of it, uh, as I say, I, and I think we all understand if you've ever had a mortgage or you know had to pay through this, 
And, and it's always a little depressing when you look at your bank statement, and you say, that's all yeah. I'm paid off the principal because most of it's going to be <laughs> interest rate, especially in the early years of the mortgage, the first 10 or 15 yeah. years. Uh, yeah. Then that reverses, of course. And we, we all, I know how that works. Car payments are the same way. Anything you buy on time is going to be like that. Uh, but why should the banks be concerned? If, if for instance, 99% of my uh, money that I'm paying, say it's 700 bucks a month or whatever it may be, it's picking a number out of the air, is all interest. Uh, what, what the banks, uh, are they concerned that I'm not going to be able to make the payments? Does or, you know, may, may, maybe take me 25 years as opposed to 20 to pay it off. Does, yeah. Why does the, that well, matter the, to the bank? The idea behind it, and, and, and I'm not trying to, even though I work for a bank, I do not consult with them. I don't have any financial no. interest. I have no conflict of interest in what I'm saying to you because I'm not paid in any way, shape, or form by any financial institution. Uh, having said that, I think I, I, if I do more research, and I will, I, I think this trigger clause has been imposed by the OSFI, the regulators uh, on the banks. Uh, but whether they did or not, you're really asking the question, why is this there? Why is this requirement there? And the logic is that... Um, it, 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 yes, it takes a long time to pay down that principal on your mortgage, 25 years some, or longer if you have a longer amortization. But the, uh, the, the, the logic behind that rule, whether it's imposed by the bank or OSFI, is, is that it's not right for students, for, for excuse me, for, uh, for borrowers to find that they're, they're, the amount after paying all that money month after month after month to have their debt go up, not down, if only marginally. That's seen as somehow... Un, uh, not right, unfair, and so the uh, the belief is is that this is going to be um, it's riskier because you end up literally owing more money as time goes by if they add on the shortfall that you're you're because you're not covering all of the interest payment if they add that onto your principal that means your the amount you owe the bank is actually going up as you're making payments and that's a that's a strong um, demotivator. And as well as making the situation riskier. And so I think that's the logic behind the trigger is, is that what they're, they're trying to do is ensure that uh, some customers won't wake up and say, Mike, this is crazy. You know, I'm paying a big, big, big mortgage payment every month and my debt is getting bigger, not smaller. Like that's not right. And so they have this rule that says you, uh, we, when I was in banking, we had a rule. We were very tough on this. We could not renew the mortgage to cover off a delinquent payment on the mortgage. It wasn't allowed. And uh, so I suspect this trigger clause is um, relying on that same principle. And as you mentioned, I know you're going to do more research on this, and it's been around for a few years, but never part of the discussion. I mean, we've been blessed uh, with low interest rates for so low long now. Rate. We've just become used the to that. The reason we weren't discussing the trigger clause is because for the last, oh my goodness, since the 80s, when I, I was at the bank when the rates hit 20%. And since then until now, we've had really, really low, unprecedentedly low interest rates. In fact, I looked them up very quickly, Bill. And they, uh, in the last five years, they have never been this low in the history of the U.S. or England, U.K., uh, going back 250 years. They've never been this low. So that's how extraordinarily low they are. But the bad news is, is that because we became reliant and dependent on that, now as rates are going up, people are getting hit, especially with variable rate mortgages. It's not a problem for those who locked in for three years, four years, or five years. They're completely protected until their mortgage comes up for renewal. But the people with variable rate mortgages are at much greater risk. 
Now, I'm just getting a couple of emails here from some of our listeners as we're carrying through the conversation here, Ian. Uh, what is uh, the trigger rate? Is there a, a percentage? I mean, you know, when, or does it vary from institution to institution as to, I as to where that is? it varies from institution to institution and based on how much you're paying, um, you know, what percentage of the, of the capital you're paying, how large the mortgage is. So I do believe it varies. Now, I will double check that. So the next time I talk to you, I have that at my fingertips. Mortgage lending, I mean, you have certain rules that are just a, a ones uh, that apply to everybody. But at the same time, there's a lot of discretion involved because you're dealing with an individual person who has a particular income at a particular time point in time. Uh, the partner has an income as well, and they bought a particular house in a particular city. The amount you borrow varies from city to city, and of course, even within the city. And so there's because of that variability, there's, there's a lot of, uh, shall we say, customization. There's general rules, but then you have to apply them. And uh, so I'd have to look up. I don't think it's a hardened task other than the, the, the what I've just described. Now, when you reach that point, if I get the, you know, the phone call from my, my friendly bank and said, hey, Bill, we, we need to talk about something here, uh, what options do I have as, as a consumer? Uh, the first thing you should do is be talking to the bank because they, they, can, they own your house. I mean, literally. The mortgage uh, basically says then that the mortgage laws of Canada, that the, the, in essence, they own the house. And uh, so you should not run away from them or go somewhere else or listen to some seductive ad from uh, one of these bankruptcy uh, organizations that offer you bankruptcy services. Because at the end of the day, the bank, and I'm talking the first mortgage, those who are uh, the, 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 the financial institution to which you, the borrower, owe that money to on a first mortgage basis, they have absolute priority claim on that house ahead of everybody, including unpaid taxes, and, uh, and whether to the federal government or, or to the provincial or the municipal. So you, um, you, have, to be, um, you have to deal with them. And uh, going to the bank, if you lose your job or something has happened, you're you know, over, overextended, uh, the first thing to do is talk to the bank. Because today, uh, my judgment is, Bill, and I'm no longer there, of course, I haven't been there since the early 80s, is they're much more sensitive today, much more sensitive today about things like foreclosure. I mean, I don't want to give you the idea that back when I was there that we just foreclosed at the drop of a pin. In my time, it was extremely serious. I mean, we had to go all the way up to the senior vice president in Toronto to get permission to foreclose on a customer. It was seen as so extraordinary and unusual. And I would suggest to you and your listeners that today that's even more the case. They're much more sensitive about this. So they're going to look at all kinds of options and all kinds of us, um, of um, uh, tools that they have. I was reading in the Globe and Mail the other day, there's even a provision in some institutions to uh, explicitly add it on, essentially making a, an additional loan for the, uh, if you're, if you have a, uh, overdue payments, they're adding it onto the principal. Now that's a variation of what I said a moment ago. Um, and, but I'm, it depends again on the circumstances and the reasons, you know, and if you are, have legitimate reasons, you know, you lost your job or something like that, they're going to, uh, I think, uh, move, uh, uh, do everything possible, um, to, to accommodate you and uh, to develop policies that will allow you to stay in your house. Uh, by the way, the delinquency ratio in Canada as we speak right now, I looked it up, that one I did look up, is 0.2. In other words, 99.8% of all Canadians with mortgages are up to date in their mortgage payments with their bank or credit union. So this is, we're talking very tiny, tiny numbers. 
that are not uh, that are not uh, up to date. In in this particular situation, though, uh, can I just maybe lock in and say, okay, forget about this very worried stuff? Uh, is that an option for me, or, or as you say, yes. can you extend uh, yeah. the the amortization and simply say that'll offer some relief, or would it? Yeah, the um, when when I first started, when the interest rates started moving, I mean, in fact, even before they started to move, about a year ago, in my various local uh, interviews here in Ottawa, you know, people would say, "What should I do?" And my answer was, I said, "If you believe interest rates are going to go up," and I said, "And I do," then I would recommend you lock in now because these are at rates so low. Well, I don't think we're going to see them again in my lifetime. And uh, so some people said, "Yes," but my mortgage payment's going to jump because it does. The fixed rate uh, uh, rates. The rate of the fixed rate mortgage is higher, uh, significantly higher uh, than the variable rate mortgage. So there's a price you pay for flipping or switching uh, from variable to fixed. But what you have with a fixed rate mortgage is the peace of mind and security that you are protected, whatever you finally agreed to flip it to. I mean, what you and the bank uh, came to terms on. And uh, if you go to the fixed rate mortgage, you are then protected for that period of time. I followed my own advice back in the late seventies. I uh, bought, bought a garden home at the time and uh, I had bought at 10 and a quarter, which was the going rate. And then I saw where rate inflation was going. I saw what the central banks were muttering about and I decided to lock in and I went in for a five year and I locked in. And then in that subsequent five years, that's when the rates went all the way up to 20 and then they came back down and when i finally came up for renewal five years later i renewed if i recall at almost the same rate i'd renewed at five years before but in that five-year period it had gone all the way up and all the way back down so you are buying protection against rate increases uh for that period of time of course it, it works the other way too if rates go back down then you're you're locked in at that higher rate having said that for everybody listening I do not believe we're going to be ever go back down to those, you know, 1.5% variable rate mortgages. I, I don't, I think those are days are gone. And so, uh, the, the rate increases are, we're, we're, we're more at the long-term historical average right now than we were two years ago when we had rates lower than they had in the Great Depression of the 1930s. That's how crazy it was. Our rates were so low, they were lower than during the depression of the 1930s. I do not believe we're going back to those rates. So you, some people say, gee whiz, if I go to fixed, it's going to go up. Well, uh, my, and this isn't very perhaps sensitive on my part, but I'm going to have to say it. We're all going to have to get used to higher baseline rates in mortgages, both variable and fixed. We're not going back to those days of two years ago, three years ago, four years ago in the mortgage market. Ian Lee from uh, Carleton University, as always. Hey, hey, thanks so much for this and for clarifying this for our listeners. Really appreciate it, Ian. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.